This is Paul Nobles from the Eat Form Coaches Course. I am sitting here with Dr. Mike T. Nelson, and Dr. Mike T. Nelson's wife Jody is walking around in the background. Um, she, oh, par- yeah. she apparently doesn't know that we're doing a professional podcast here, Mike. Um, professional. On the call, we have uh, Chad Wesley Smith from Juggernaut Training System. Chad, are you still there? I am here. Okay, super. So, yeah, why don't you talk a little bit about Juggernaut Training Systems for the, the few people that, uh, you know, don't know what you guys do, and then kind of give the gist. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, Juggernaut is a little bit hard for me to pinpoint, I guess, sometimes, but uh, at its core, it's really an education uh, outlet for, you know, all things real serious fitness, you know, really trying to cater a bit more to, to competitive athletes and uh, you know, higher-level coaches, but, but you know, really just create a platform for powerlifters, weightlifters, crossfitters, uh, physical therapists, nutritionists, so on and so forth, to, uh, to share their ideas with a, with a broader audience and you know, really just try and put, say, uh, real experts in front of uh, in front of audiences. I think too many times... You know, the, the kind of the coaches and athletes who are maybe living it on a daily basis, but don't quite have the uh, the internet savvy or writing savvy. Uh, yeah, maybe don't get the exposure that would really be most beneficial to uh, to the audience, you know, to readers and listeners out there. So, yeah, we've, I would, uh, just I just passed our six year anniversary, and uh, we've been focused on you know, more of that the information creation and sharing. For the last three years, yeah. So you're you're actually headed to Russia next week um, to do some seminars over there. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I know that you know you're often in Australia and Ireland and all these these places doing live presentations. Can you talk a little bit about what you do there? Yeah. Um, well, so I'll actually leave for Australia first. Um, in about two two and a half weeks, I'll I'll leave for Australia where I'll do uh, four seminars uh, as well as compete in a powerlifting meet. And then from Australia, we'll go to Russia to compete in another powerlifting meet. Um, and the, the hands-on courses that I'll do in uh, Australia, two, two of them are just lectures. Um, and those will be kind of covering the main principles of, uh, of programming, really trying to be more descriptive as, uh, rather than prescriptive about you know what makes a good program how can people evaluate for themselves if they're if what they're doing is is well designed and you know, as, as long as it's satisfying these these seven different uh, principles you know regardless of sport or or, uh, or level of the athlete you know the, those seven principles a deep understanding of those will allow them to create you know, a, a successful strength program for pretty much anyone. Um, and then I'll also do some, some events where I get into hands-on coaching. Uh, so that would be the lecture portion of things plus you know, hands-on coaching for the squat bench and deadlift, uh, you know, just addressing people's technique there. Yeah. One of the things that I think that's sort of interesting um, for what you guys do is that you're talking mostly about, raw lifting right and so when you look when you look at the way that most gyms are you know treating the squat the deadlift and and you know 
overhead press, but in, in this instant bench, bench press, um, it really transfers well to a lot of kind of the CrossFit gyms, but even really just kind of the normal gyms. You know, there's a there's a gym um, Southside, you know, that we train at. And, you know, you mentioned the name Chad Wesley Smith and they're like, oh, my God, that's so amazing. You know, um, <laughs> And so, so yeah, so, uh, so unstoppable is that, is that, is that off for, um, for, uh, that's, that's, that's next weekend. Oh, okay. Um, I got you. Yeah. I, I, I leave for Australia on November 10th. Okay. So I'll, I'll, I'll do, I'll do a quick synopsis if this ever shows up as a podcast. Cause I think that that would be kind of interesting, but I went to unstoppable last year and there were probably the, the two best stories from that. You know, I mean, really, Chad and I could sit here and and really talk about the business aspect of things from social media, because I think, you know, that would be an interesting podcast in and of itself, because, you know, um, Eat Forms only three years old, um, Juggernaut's six years old, but I would say your biggest growth has probably been in, what, the last three years, right, with the rise of social media, yeah, definitely the last three years. You know, the, the first the first three years, I was really just focused on the in person uh, gym business um, and growing our in person clientele, which is you know, a great thing, but certainly different than uh, you know internet fitness world. Um, and it was only almost by chance, really, that I decided to write the first Juggernaut Method ebook. In 2000, and that came out in December 2010. And you know, e- ebooks for for fitness, especially written by powerlifters, were were uh, much more scarce at that time. There was kind of five three one out there by Jim Wendler, and that was that was about it. Um, so you know, I, I decided to write this this one for about the program that I was doing for myself and was using for a lot of our athletes at the gym. And, uh, yeah, I just sort of wrote it in about maybe eight or 10 Sunday afternoons and formatted it myself and designed the cover and put it for sale. And, and then that kind of opened my eyes to, you know, the power of the internet as, as far as an educational tool, um, you know, realizing that that book was reaching thousands and thousands of people, you know, where I was never going to be able to see more than a hundred or 150 in person a week. Yeah, like, I would say that, you know, of the books that you have, I've probably bought half or more, um, because like you said, they, they're from scientific sources. Many of the people that are writing are PhDs on the topic, um, you know, Renaissance periodization, that was a that was a big one for you guys with Dr. Mike Isratel. I'll tell, tell a funny story about Dr. Mike Isratel in a second. Um, and then... Uh, you know, Alex um, Vieta, we actually had Alex, we, we recommend um, that coaches read the hybrid training um, just because, mm-hmm. you know, we just, you know, I'm a big believer in that. And actually, it's sort of funny, Chad, because after leaving Unstoppable last year, I just need to make sure that my phone is in airplane mode. But um, after leaving Unstoppable last year and listening to Alex speak, I think I actually talked to you a little bit about this online, but uh, I sort of changed my routine and I was already doing some hypertrophy work 
and I had kind of the strength component and I thought I was doing like a long endurance component um, but I added a little bit more as you know I started talking to Alex and you know right now I'm up to you know 18 miles is my next uh, my next you know um, level up but uh, so yeah, when when I went to Unstoppable last year, and you know anybody that gets the chance to be there, it's really kind of a spectacular thing because you have a lot of real high level athletes, and you know there's really no secret about it. I'm not a super high level athlete. You know, I'm kind of a one trick pony. I can do a few things that are pretty decent for a 50 year old, but what I remember most about it. So you have Chad and. And, and Brandon were kind of like the, the two people at this point. And both of them are, you know, just like massive human beings. You know, I'm like a 170-pound dude. You know, both of these guys are 300-pound are massive body lifters. Like, they they're both look like bears. Chad's like a nice bear. And then Brandon, <laughs> Brandon, Brandon's like the mean bear, you know. Angry bear. Yeah. And so, so I'm going to the various stations that are set up. And I mean, it's literally like a who's who of amazing lifters and amazing athletes all amongst. And they're all training you, right? And so um, I get to the deadlift station, which is my best station, but I'm not 100%. I haven't slept very much. And it basically, I don't know if you guys have seen the, the, the movie Miracle, but uh, there's, a, there's a point where Herb Brooks like just keeps um, blowing the whistle and saying again, again, again. And so I'm deadlifting for Brandon and he's like, you did two movements again, you know, and you, you know, this and that. And I was like, screw you, dude, I'm out of here. I was like, I'm, you know, it was, it was really, it was funny, but, uh, you know, we were, we were sort of joking about it, but, you know, I mean, Brandon is, was, you know, he was a pretty intense dude. And, uh, I would say, you know, of the things that I've learned in the fitness industry and of the seminars, that was far and away the best. I mean, it wasn't even close. Oh, thank you. Yeah, the uh, just the the level of attention. But what was really nice about it was that it was very personal. You know, I mean, the for me at least, um, you know, I'm I'm joking about Brandon, but it wasn't real. Things weren't presented in a judgmental way. You know, as athletes, it was just kind of breaking down. You know, uh, your your form or into components, and then you know they would give you. Um, tips. You know, I have so many funny stories from from that weekend, though, Chad. But you know, what, the the other funny story, and and before we get into your presentation, um, is I was sitting there at dinner with Mike Ezratel and Alex Vieta, and Mike goes, "Well, you know, you guys really don't know what we're talking about because we're sort of, you know, kind of like these social media guys." I looked around and go, what are you talking about, dude? I have 1.2 million followers on Facebook. And he, what he was saying was he's, you know, they're controversial, right? They, they're, they, they, they have a take, whereas we're sort of a media portlet, you know, rather, you know, rather than, um, but I thought that was, that was one of the, one of the funnier other, other than, um, ah, shoot, what? Who was the who was the the Olympic lifting guy? What was his name? Sean. Um, 
Sean, Wax, Sean Waxman. Yeah, yeah. When Sean, when Sean Waxman told me to never Olympic lift again, that was a pretty, <laughs> that was a pretty funny moment for me. Yeah, um, Sean, Sean has a certain uh, like Brooklyn charm to him that uh, not many people can can really match. This that's that particular band of, of Brooklyn, you know, gruffness to his coaching cues and bluntness. Well, yeah, the um, I would say, you know, I, I probably had 20 minutes worth of interaction with him. And I've in those 20 minutes, I've used that, you know, in seminars and personal conversations with people. You know, I mean, what he said was just really super helpful. And, and, and everybody was, you know, um, I'm joking about Brandon, but, you know, seriously, like what he was saying is that the bar needs to move from one path from the ground to where you lift. You know, and that actually was very helpful for me in the end. So we can sort of do what, whatever you want to do. Um, I know you had mentioned something about, um, uh, you know, periodization and trying to talk a little bit about how someone would peak, you know, from a mentality standpoint, but also from a programming standpoint. So do you want to just get rolling or, or we can we can do it a little bit different? It's up to you. Uh, you know, I mean, whatever is going to work for your guys best. I got, you know, 20 presentations locked and loaded at any given moment. So I'm yeah, not, I, <laughs> I think from the coach's standpoint, uh, the, you know, what you can give us, you know, from the standpoint of, of, uh, programming for and peaking and the mentality that an athlete needs for that, that would, that would be a good topic and probably the thing that coaches would learn the most from. Great. Yeah, that'll that'll be easy. That'll give me a, a little bit of a work through for for next weekend on that. So, sure. So you want to just go ahead? Where did where did you want to start? You want to start mentality first, or did you want to go into um, sort of the? Yeah, it'll be the it'll be the, the programming aspects first, and then the, the mentality kind of has the icing on the cake for it. Sounds good. All right. You want me to just kind of start presenting? Yeah, go ahead. Because, I mean, basically, it's kind of difficult because you can't see the cues that Mike and I would give you one way or the other. So it's a little harder with you being on the phone. But go right ahead. All right. Sounds good. Yeah, so what I wanted to talk about today is, uh, you know, proper peaking design. I'm going to speak about it within the context of powerlifting. But uh, the principles would hold true for uh, yeah, really any, any sports. Um, and, and a properly designed peak is all about the mate, uh, the uh, optimization of a fitness fatigue relationship. So basically, you know, on a specific day, having the highest level of fitness, and I'm not using the CrossFit definition of fitness here. I'm using the sports science definition of fitness, which is basically just your preparedness for a given task. Um, and so, like I said, I'll be talking about powerlifting. So basically how strong you are and how uh technically proficient you are in the power lifts and balancing that versus how well rested you are um so oh, yes every training uh, that you do is stimulus that you present yourself you know, is going to induce a certain level of fatigue um, but obviously you have to induce enough fatigue so that you can develop high enough fitness and it's just about the timing of the you know reduction of intensity and volume uh, timing that properly based upon 
you know, the, uh, several considerations for the athlete that we'll get into in a bit um, to set yourself up for that best performance on the given day. Uh, I take a lot of pride in my ability to peak as a powerlifter um, throughout my powerlifting career, five years to the day, uh, a five, five year long career now. Uh, I did my first powerlifting meet five years ago today that uh, I've been able to consistently, very, very effectively peak for competition, putting about seven and a half percent on my competition total compared to uh, my training total for that subsequent training or my gym total for that subsequent training cycle. Um, my best squat in training uh, is 863 and I went on to squat 959 in a meet about two weeks after that. Uh, my best training bench was 525 and I went on to uh, bench 567 about two weeks after that and then my best training deadlift uh, was 790 before I went and pulled 810 during competition uh, with a real close miss at 821. And I, you know, I see a lot of lifters out there who are leaving their best performances in the gym, and it's happening for a variety of reasons, but, but basically they're almost training too hard. Uh, I was joking to one of my friends the other day that I – I'm just relaxing my way to PRs that uh, you know, people don't put enough stock in, you know, decaying fatigue, resting, you know, sleeping, eating, soft tissue therapy, passive recovery means uh, as a as a way to optimize themselves for competition. Yeah, you know, they want to do too much, too close to the meat, things that are inappropriate from a specificity or overload standpoint to either cause them to, to peak early or to peak too late. Even uh, this past weekend, I was at USAPL Nationals, which I believe was the biggest powerlifting meet ever in terms of number of competitors. There were 1,147 registered lifters and uh, have seen in the days since then at least three or four people putting up videos of their training this week where they're doing weights above what they did in the competition. And uh, to me, you know, that's a severe flaw in the design of the program. So a, a well-designed peaking block is going to you know, hold on to your hypertrophic and general strength gains that you developed in earlier uh, parts of the training. So you know, inherently peaking training is the highest intensity work that you'll do uh, and with that, also the lowest volume work that you'll do. So having a really extended peaking block um, of, of high intensity, low volume work could potentially lead to uh, loss of muscle mass. And, you know, so an optimal peaking block is going to reduce that as much as possible because reduction of muscle mass would cause a loss of fitness. Um, and then, so, you know, we're going to try and hang on to as much muscle mass as we can from earlier training cycles. And then, you know, it's really going to be directed at uh, honing the technique and neural path, uh, you know, neural pathways needed to lift maximal loads. Because when we're in uh, a hypertrophy block, for example, and maybe doing sets of six to 12 in the 60 to 75% intensity range, 
or in a general strength block doing sets of uh, four to six reps in the 75 uh, to 85 or 75 to 90% range. You don't have to be technically perfect to get those reps with the you know, less than less than maximal load. You, know, you could be a little bit forward, a little bit backwards, a little bit change in the stance, and you can still make you know three reps with 85% or maybe three reps with with 90%. But when you get to those true 100% loads, and particularly as you become a more and more advanced athlete, everything has to become more precise. And the only way that you can really, truly practice the technique that's required for those uh, those max level lifts is to do max level lifting. Um, and, but certainly the you know those high intensity loads are going to put you know, a different level, a different kind of stress on the body than hypertrophy, you know, high volume work and so that gets into the issue of uh, what's known as SRA, uh, Stimulus Recovery Adaptation. And every lift and different system of the body is going to have a different length SRA curve. And the start of that curve is when the stimulus is induced. Um, so when you, you know, when you present the stimulus to, to the body and, and so when you do the training. Um, and within the power lifts, you know, for most people, the... Uh, the longest SRA curve, so basically the longest time from presenting the stress to the system to uh, when your when your body goes through you know the hormonal uh, you know hormone releases and, and responses and then you know, tissue repair uh, that the RA part of SRA the, the longest SRA curve would be with the deadlift then the squat, and then the bench. And that has to do with the distance the bar is moving, uh, the total load on the bar, um, and then some with with, uh, with like joint joint angles and, and whatnot. And then, you know, you can shorten an SRA curve by someone being more proficient in their technique or uh, you know, a shorter, a smaller lifter is going to have a shorter SRA curve because the bar is just not moving as far for him, so it just doesn't induce as much damage. Um, so, yeah, Chad, so as, as we Chad, look at the Chad, can I interrupt you for just a second, or is that going to mess you up too much? No, no problem. So, one of the things that was interesting that I, you know, I mentioned Sean um, Waxman earlier, and when he did his presentation, he talked about some of the things that you were talking about, and he went into hypertrophy work quite a bit. We actually did hypertrophy to death in the last, you know, five um, coaches courses, um, coaches uh -huh. course segments. And so uh, one of the things that was interesting about, uh, you know, my conversation with Sean afterwards was I, I said to him later on, I said, you know, everybody keeps talking about hypertrophy. I said, we've seen so many body fat tests. And, you know, I asked him, I said, how much does leverage against the bar and central nervous system adaptation matter compared to hypertrophy? And he said, it's all of it. And what was, what was funny is, and the reason why I bring that up is because what you're talking about 
I think you want to weigh a couple points, right? You want to go, well, how much is the value of hypertrophy and how much is the value of central nervous system? I obviously both apply, right? Yeah, but and, and definitely weightlifting is a much more uh, nervous system, you know, precise uh, exercise rather than powerlifting. And that's why you don't, there aren't you know, many incredible physiques that you see in, in weightlifting because it's not as it's not as important. Um, yeah, the Klokov, you know, being a much more of an outlier in weightlifting, where you have a guy like Ilya Ilyin, and he doesn't have a ton of hypertrophy compared to like a top level, you know, powerlifter like Dan Green or someone like that, um, because the 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 lifts are such higher velocity, you know, more technical, uh, and the loads are lighter. Hypertrophy just doesn't. You know, quite play the same role in uh, in weightlifting as it does powerlifting. Yeah, I think it, I, I the only reason why I stopped you was just because I think that when people start to think of all this stuff, you know, they think that they're going to put on tons of muscle, you know, by just lifting heavy or or whatever. And like you were saying early on in in your presentation, it really comes down to what you're trying to accomplish. You know, and if you're trying to uh, to lift, you know, the heaviest loads, central nervous system adaptation is going to be probably much bigger than even hypertrophy. Obviously, there's a point where you have to have an intersection, but I yeah, I, I just think yeah, that's that kind of, that's kind of about looking at it in the in the short term or in the long term. Because if if you told me I right, you have one month to get this person to lift as much weight as possible then doing like a high intensity, high frequency type of program, like a Bulgarian method or you know, a variation of that, that's going to yield the fastest short term result without a doubt. But since you know, we're likely not in a, uh, in a time crunch like that, you know, it's taking stuff in phases, you know, whether it's different career phases and, and different, you know, blocks of training, the uh, hypertrophy is going to be a, a big thing. And I think when you look at you know, the difference between beginner, intermediate, and advanced uh, competitors and, and powerlifting particularly, you know, the amount of muscle mass they carry is probably the biggest distinguishing factor. Like if you put five people in front of me and I didn't know anything about them, I could just look at them and see how much muscle they had and I had to pick who was the strongest. I'm going to pick the guy with the most muscle. He's the most likely to, to be able to lift the most, the most weight, you know, with no other consideration being presented, but the other, it's all, yeah, it's all the, about timing. The other theme that seems to come up in a lot of the coaches calls is something, you know, once again, I, I think that, you know, hypertrophy is done to death. It's talked about all the time. Central nervous system doesn't get talked about as much. And so I feel like, you know, that always needs to be emphasized. But the other part that needs to be emphasized more than more than really just about anything is the rest. You know, I mean, you're bringing it up. Alex brought it up. Lane Norton brought it up. But people really still want to beat the hell out of themselves. And I, I have to say, as an aging athlete who, did, who came to fitness late in my life, you know, 
that rest, that was the thing that made me different. And not only was it the thing that made me different, it was the thing that made my body look different, right? You know, because beating the hell out of myself, I just kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And uh, and so I, I think, you know, the emphasis of rest is a big thing. Yeah, and, you know, that's all kind of in search of this idea of uh, MRV, your maximum recoverable volume. And uh, we're really looking at weekly or monthly volume and that, and every, you know, what the maximum amount of work the person can tolerate is. Because the closer that you can train to that without, uh, you know, exceeding it and getting into the idea of non-functional overreaching uh, and then, you know, a chronic uh, state of that would be overtraining, you know, the better the person's going to be able to, to perform. But certainly there is a, a limit to how, to how much an uh, athlete can do. And I think it's, you know, it's laughable when these – People will try to say that overtraining is a myth or something like that. You know, if, if overtraining was a myth, then Olympic athletes would be you know, training for 12 hours a day and then sleeping and eating for the other 12 hours out of the day. But you now that doesn't happen because there's a you know, a finite amount of work that that everyone's body can do, and you know, it's largely going to be determined by genetics. But the, the more you can do, the better. But that's you know, still going to be controlled by by what you can recover from. And I think you know, it's kind of what I was talking about the SRA that all of these different these different uh, lifts have different length uh, recovery rates and different systems you know, hypertrophic general strength technique nervous system all have different uh, recovery rates as well because you, know, you could have someone do really high level uh, or you know, really precise technical work very, very frequently. And that's why you can have a sport you know, like tennis or golf um, where people are training with tremendously high frequency because you know, the, doing such a low-intensity movement as a golf swing, um, you know, they're not going to – they can – play around in the morning, play around in the, in the evening, play around in the morning, play around in the evening because those, that technical recovery is so short and it's not stressing the other systems like nervous, uh, you know, like the nervous system, which is going to be a much longer um, SRA curve. And management, those things as you need to different peaking strategies uh, and using, you know, overload sessions. And by that, I just mean, hard basically hard training sessions uh balanced light training sessions or technical training sessions it's all part of you know maximizing the the ability for that for that condition um yeah as i said the the longest usually for the power lifts the longest sra curve so what can be trained hard the least frequently would be the deadlift and then um, yeah, a lot of people tolerate very well, uh, pretty frequent squat training. Um, obviously the, the heavier the weight on the bar gets, the less frequently you're going to be able to do really heavy, you know, work. I'm not going to be able to squat 900 on 
Monday and then come back on Wednesday and do it again and come back on Friday and do it again. It just yeah, it doesn't doesn't work like that. But if you know someone was doing 400, that might be more possible for them. And, and something to take in, uh, to mention briefly with that is the absolute output there actually would supersede the importance of the athlete's relative abilities. So say we had a 132 pound athlete who who could squat 400 and a 275 pound athlete who could squat, you know, maybe 650, um, 400 at 132, I think is a much relatively better lift than the 650 at 275, but the uh, smaller athlete would still have a shorter SRA curve because, you know, well, one odds are that someone weighs 132, they're probably really short. So the bar isn't moving very far. Uh, so it doesn't, yeah, it just doesn't induce as much uh, homeostatic disruption and muscle damage. Um, but also, they don't have as much muscle mass, so the hormonal responses to training are not as significant. There's not as much muscle muscle damage caused, so they could train more uh, more frequently than a larger than a larger athlete. So the the couple of things to consider when looking at the length of a uh, length of taper during during the during the peaking is going to be one athlete size. Um, your athlete's going to need longer to decay fatigue. Um, the athlete's gender is going to play a role in that as uh, male athletes because of higher testosterone levels are going to be able to uh, hold on to their fitness longer. Uh, they won't lose muscle mass as quickly. Um, so they can also can and should use a longer taper. Um, the Chad, athlete's can you, relative can you, can you describe, ability. Can you describe what you mean by taper just so in a broad sense? All right. Yeah. The, the taper is going to be the, uh, the time of significant reduction in volume and intensity before the competition. So like, yeah, a deload might be, some people might call it a deload. Uh, it's kind of just a phrasing thing that if it's right before a competition, I would call it a taper instead of a deload, uh, where I'd call it a deload you know, farther out, just as a break between intensive cycles. Um, so basically what you're you're describing, and, and I, I do want to get to one point, because I think that one of the things that's going to happen for a lot of people is they're going to hear what you're saying, and they're going to think that it applies to elite athletes and a lot of what you're talking about can you know also be a factor for instance um you know when you're new to training you can see a lot of a lot of gains really quickly but that period of time does not last very long and so at that point you are a relatively trained athlete and so, you know, I remember when I first started CrossFit, as an example, I thought to myself, well, I'll be 45 soon. I'll be making the Masters. No problem. You know, because I'm seeing this, you know, this progress and thinking to myself, it's going to last forever. And then now when I look at, you know, the progress that I've made over the last, you know, year to two years, it's really required a lot more thought. One of the things that, you know, you mentioned it, and we talk about a lot 
is amount of work. You know, amount of work matters. And so if, for instance, you can only attend CrossFit, you know, or powerlift or whatever it is, you know, when I was powerlifting, this was actually one of my problems was I had a good feel for, you know, a little bit of the hypertrophy work. I had a good feel for what it took to get stronger, but I was just like killing my CNS. I wasn't recovering enough and I didn't have enough of the work component from the cardio standpoint to really get better in a broad sense, right? So I got really good at deadlifting, but I wasn't getting good, you know, in a broad way. And so, um, so I just thought, I don't, I don't want people to hear what you're saying and think, well, it only applies to people that squat a thousand pounds, right? Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to touch on the, well, that's kind of what I'm talking about now, the, the different considerations as far as different length tapers based on uh, different athlete abilities and, and everything else. Sure. Go right ahead. Uh, so, so as I mentioned, the first two things you want to, you want to consider uh, when determining the length of a taper are going to be the, uh, the size of the athlete and um, the, uh, well, you mentioned what gender. I say, gender. Gender, yeah. I yeah, gender. Uh, yeah, so, so gender, male athletes are going to require a longer, longer taper uh, than females because of the hormonal differences as well as uh, speaking in generalities. Again, females tend to be more balanced uh, from a fiber type standpoint. Um, if you have a, a athlete who's really fast twitch dominant, uh, basically all the work they do will be more stressful to their nervous system and the nervous system SRA is a, is a long curve. Um, so with, with female athletes being more balanced fiber type, they usually won't require as long of a taper. Uh, and then you also also need to consider how long the athlete's been training. Um, yeah, really, or, sorry, first, uh, you want to consider how, how good they are, how strong they are. Uh, if you have, yeah, uh, world-class competitor, um, you know, very close to their career peak. So they're maximizing their abilities much more and their everything they do is going to relatively take longer to recover from, um, than a beginner athlete. So that, uh, yeah, size of the athlete, gender, um, how experienced they are and then their proximity to career peak really how good they are um at their sport yeah so like i have the 10th highest total of all time in powerlifting um so I, I would be about as far to one side of this discussion as possible six foot one 360 pounds so as big as it gets you know on the athlete size a pretty fast twitch dominant male lifter and with a very, very high total, very high weights. So I take, I take about the longest tape of all the powerlifters I've talked to. I take about the longest taper of anyone. It's about two weeks, um, without any real hard training before a competition. But if we were to take, you know, a 114 pound class female powerlifter who has been training for, you know, six months 
while I'm taking 14 days of reduced intensity, uh, reduced volume before a competition, they could really be looking at taking maybe as short as one day uh, on that very far side of, you know, opposite side of the spectrum as I am. But uh, if you know, people want to check out our scientific principles of strength training, we actually have a chart in there. I also have a, a YouTube video that covers this as well, pretty in depth. But uh, there's a chart that kind of classifies people by uh, body size, so the weight class, experience, uh, breaks down the you know the different powerlifting classes, elite or pro, uh, you know, master, class one, class two, class three, um, and then would put put people into different categories from a category one lifter needing one to three days taper. Uh, so again, that would be lighter, less experienced. Um, weaker to you know, class two or a category two lifter taking uh, you know four to seven days taper so that's going to be a, a middleweight lifter you know more experienced um, and stronger up to a category three lifter who's going to be you know the higher weight classes more experienced strongest you know getting into pretty elite strength levels who are maybe going to be taking seven to 10 days of re reduced intensity and volume before, uh, for competition. So Chad, I wanted to, uh, st I wanted to stop you right there unless that's a bad place to stop you. Go for it. Okay. So part of the problem that we have, just so everybody knows is that go to meeting doesn't really allow you to transition like that so oftentimes i will it seems like i'm interrupting chad but that's really the only way to get his attention um if you were on a regular phone as an example um you could communicate a little bit easier so that makes it a little bit difficult for me to jump in but when you're talking yeah. when you talk, uh, go ahead i was gonna say when uh for some reason, I was under the impression that we weren't going to be recording this, that I was going to be, like, talking live to the group. Otherwise, I would have, like, done it this morning or something. I thought we were, like, for some reason, I had it in my head that I wanted to stay, that we needed to stay, like, as close to that time we had put out oh, yeah, uh, no. as possible. Yeah, I mean, like, but, you know, the, the <laughs> kind idea... Kind of a mood yeah, no, at this point, I mean, I think we'll probably end in, you know, what, 11 minutes, something of that nature, um, and we'll we'll finish up with kind of the mentality of the peaking. But I wanted to get into um, the, uh, the deload or taper that you're referring to and talk a little bit about why you're stronger. Because I think what you're referring to is, is known as supercompensation and... Um, in, unless yeah. I'm think, unless I'm thinking of something different, because one of the things that started to come up a lot, and we actually have a lot of our um, clients using heart rate variability, and one of the things that's interesting about heart rate variability is I think that a lot of people think that I need greens all the time, and I think what you're saying. Um, and it sort of relates to the heart rate variability is that actually 
oranges and reds are somewhat the goal occasionally, right? You want to have enough stress on your system and then allow enough recovery so you get into the greens. So can you talk a little bit about why supercompensation is the reason that you're lifting more than other lifters because they're under too much stress and not using, you know, a good approach? Oh, did we lose chat? I don't hear anything. Yeah, we may have lost him. Oh, yeah, his uh, his phone is out. He was driving. Um, I can talk a little bit about what he's saying because I think it is a really interesting point, and I'm fairly certain Mike could as well. Um, actually, you know, why don't we do that? Um, because I think what what Chad is going to say is that. Um, you know, he's able to lift in training and because he takes that rest, his body is able to adapt to the stimulus and then ultimately get stronger as a result. Can you talk a little bit about supercompensation before we get Chad back on? Yeah, so a couple of things. So as I think of it as sort of the residual fatigue. So imagine if you're standing on the shore and you're sort of kind of watching waves come in, sort of building up. So if you lift with a pretty high volume one day, maybe only have one day off or even go in the next day and the next day that the amount of fatigue kind of builds up over time. And I think it was Kelly Baggett years ago that said, um, fatigue masks fitness. So if you've got this super high level of fatigue, which like you said, you need some in order to get the adaptations, the positive adaptations that you want. But if you've got this super high level of fatigue, you can't have your superest highest level of performance at the same time. So the basic thing with the taper is that you're allowing uh, time for the fatigue to come back down. And that allows you one to display your level of fitness. And then with the super compensation, you're kind of hoping that you get these more positive adaptations. So if you were to graph them on time, you always have in training some level of fatigue. You know, you can do, like you said, a deload, things of that nature. Um, but once you remove all that fatigue, you've got this little spike that comes up where your performance temporarily now is going to be a little bit higher. Yeah, and I think that what, what sort of, you know, gets forgotten, you know, in this whole process as we talk about deloads and as you're programming for clients what Chad is referring to, you know, it's obviously powerlifting based for this discussion, but really when you look at energy system recovery, um, which, which fiber types you're using, things of that nature, what you're really ultimately talking about is how you can program enough rest in so the athlete can get better as they go, right? And so what's mm -hmm. interesting about, you know, the, the discussion that I was having with Alex Vieta and what ultimately has changed my training um, was that I've not really lost any strength. In fact, I've gotten stronger as I'm running longer. And so, you know, and, and one of the things that, you know, my conversations with Chad are really, really interesting because Chad is not, you know, like a guy that's in the gym all the time, you know. Um, he's obviously naturally a very gifted athlete. Um, 
he you know was at college. I, I can't remember what he did, um, but it was you know it was one of the, like hammer throws or something like that, you know. And um, but he's obviously a very gifted athlete. So when he came onto the powerlifting scene, I mean he just like tore it up. And I think ultimately he ended up getting hurt. And so, um, so yeah, you know, Chad's actually sending me a message saying that he had some problems and that they could re redo it. Honestly, I don't think that we need to redo it. I think that, you know, what he's talked to about up to this point is about what, um, we would have needed from him, you know, given, given the circumstance. So I, I do appreciate him taking the time, but in my conversations with Chad, it would surprise people how little Chad works out, you know, and how often Chad is recovering. And so it would have been nice to maybe get into sort of the mentality of things. Um, because I know that, uh, you know, part of the thought process with, you know, a lot of the West side training and things of this nature was, you know, the, the ammonious, you know, sniffing and, and getting, <laughs> and getting like super revved up. So you could lift the heaviest weights all the time. And my suspicion is what Chad would say about that is that you really don't want to, you know, tap into that mode every single time, you know, from a hormonal standpoint, from all these different things, you know, you're just not going to allow your body enough time to recover. And then when you're training for deadlift, squat, you know, um, bench press, you've got to have, you know, some level of normal, like as an example, um, when I was training for my power meet, powerlifting meet, um, I never touched a weight, you know, I mean, in terms of like a conventional lift, um, anywhere close to what my highest lift was, you know, um, I think, you know, maybe a week before I touched 435 you know, and then ended up, um, you know, resting a week. That was some of the things that I had learned from, you know, Julia Leduski and, and Chad and these guys, because um, it didn't make sense for me, you know, because even, even though I am a relatively new athlete um, into the powerlifting scene and things of this nature, for my size and for what I was doing, it was pretty stressful. So I needed to rest. And that rest magically turned into you know, better lifts. It was harder. It was hard to stay out of the gym. It'd be interesting. You know, I don't have any plans to compete anytime real soon. But what I think that is most interesting about what Chad's saying is how can we program long endurance in? How can we program, you know, high intensity? I think one of the thing with high intensity is that you sort of, it's, it's kind of got this magical allure, right? That the intensity is always the thing. And ultimately, you can adapt to intensity, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that what happens for a lot of coaches is, you know, they'll have a bunch of people, maybe even themselves, and within the first six months to a year, intensity does amazing work. And then all of a sudden, after that six month and a year, you know, intensity is not doing the same thing. You're not getting better. You're not PRing. And so can you talk a little bit about that, Mike? Yeah, so I always think it's kind of a little bit of a, a trade-off. So if you've got someone who's relatively new 
you can do pretty low percentage of what their max is and they can get pretty good progress. And then after, let's say, you know, a few months, I agree that um, Eric Cressy had an article years ago about having people after they've been training, you know, six months for, you know, moderately active people, having them go into the gym and doing lifts at 90% of their one rep max a little bit more frequently. So that gets them that very specific practice that they really just haven't done before. And lo and behold, you know, they get much stronger from doing that. And then it's almost like sort of diminishing returns or higher costs is how I think of it. So you have someone like Chad, who's, you know, very high level lifter, very fast switch, very CNS, able to recruit a huge amount of, of muscle mass. He probably can't lift at that high of percentage a lot just because of the amount of time it's going to take him to recover from that work. The flip side is, like he was saying, at some point you have to do enough of it to get that specific practice so that you can have that motor skill. I think where a lot of people go wrong is that they, if you go to just most gyms and look, you'll see people when they try to work up to a max, you'll see the quality suffer and then you'll see them missing lifts. You'll see them trying to do it again, like the next day. And what happens is their quality just erodes. And in essence, what they're practicing is literally getting better at missing lifts. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, I think it's that, that catch 22 of, you definitely need that specific practice, but that highly specific practice, especially in higher level lifters comes with a much higher cost too. So how can you get, you know, kind of the enough of that to do pretty good. And even a lot of more advanced lifters I've talked to recently, it, it, I think people would be amazed how much work they do in the 70 to 85%, sometimes even 60% range, you know, for just a lot of volume too. Um, and a lot of people will see pretty good transfer from that too. Also hypertrophy is a side effect. Yeah. So like, you know, what you're talking about, um, Chad actually wrote an article for us talking about, um, volume yep. and, uh, I recommend that all the time. And yep. one of the things that, you know, I have talked to Chad about in the past that I think is sort of interesting is the five three ones and then the six four threes and 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 you know like this abacus right of of training percentages and things of this nature i mean some of it obviously is scientifically based uh, obviously you can't listen to chad without knowing you know he's got a good understanding of exercise physiology but at the same time you know really it's, it's like a lot of things with nutrition and fitness. You're really sort of aiming in the right direction. But in terms of specifically, you know, if you look at 531 and you base your percentage off of 90% of 510, I'll say, you know, like for deadlifts, I can base my percentage off of 530 pounds. Can I lift 530 pounds? No, right? So, and does it really matter? No, you know, um, really what you're really looking for is a simplistic guideline um, to kind of go down that route. And so I actually am using Chad's volume. I'm on the 1085. I just did eight um, yesterday. Um, and because my goal for the next six months is really more 
um, hypertrophy type work and then really trying to get in you know as much volume I, I think that you know we'll end on this note because we're actually going to talk about this with um, our next guest which is going to be Doug Chapman who trains high-level um, CrossFit Games athletes um, and one of the things that uh, I'll, I'll bring up to Doug is the amount of work that is required to adapt to stimulus and what I think that happens for a lot of athletes is they you know only have time three to four days a week to work out right and they maybe have an hour and so in that hour uh, you know they do whatever is on the board and when you look at long endurance as an example or factoring in a day where an athlete will have two to three hours worth of training you know that might be hiking that might be running that might be rowing that might be biking you know it could be a lot of different things that is one of the nice things about talking about chad is that you know he always does tie it tie it into how other athletes are training and he trains like really very tight people but my point with endurance um you know and i think chad did a real good job explaining why if you want to lift heavy you have to test heavy occasionally right but you don't have to test at your ultimate max um but at the same point work matters and so when you look at the amount of calories you're burning, the amount of mileage that you're you're doing on the road. If you're an athlete and you only have four days to train and you can take a two to three hour window and you can get in a lot of work, because what happens for a lot of people is they'll do wads for three to four days a week, okay? And they'll opt for what ultimately lands at about 15 to 20 minutes of high intensity work. Now, the rest of the hour, they might be working on skills, they might be working on a little bit of strength, but they're not working the whole time. So usually the calorie burn is going to be somewhere in 300 to 500 calories. And when I talk about calories, I'm not talking about burning calories or losing fat or, or anything like that. What I'm really no, no, no. What I'm talking about is measuring work, right? And so um, when you run for three hours, right? And so let's say that you run you know, 16 miles, 18 miles, and in that time, you're able to burn, you know, what, 2,400 calories, 2,500 calories, you essentially did 500 days of work, or five days of work in three hours. And so I think that's important for people to hear because they'll often hear their athletes say, you know, gosh, I feel like I'm really working hard, but I'm not seeing any results. And it's like the reason why you saw results in the beginning and why your results have slowed is because your body adapted to the results and you have to change the stimulus, right? And you have to add work. You know, I prefer to work smarter rather than harder. And so in the, in the case of endurance, you know, I'm not talking about what I do. I'm talking about what anyone does, you know. And so when we're looking at programming, when we're looking at how we're trying to get athletes better, the amount of work 
does matter, right? And so, Mike, I'll give you the last word, you know, just to comment on that real quick, and then, you know, we'll just go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, a couple months ago, I had this huge talk with you know, Cal Dietz, the University of Minnesota, really great coach there. And he was explaining to me his new system he was working out, and he has got the whiteboard, and we're going back and forth for like, it was literally like a half hour. And at the end of it, I'm thinking, so I'm helping him with a book on stuff going, oh my God, how do I explain this to anyone else who wasn't, you know, sitting in the room in like a short, concise statement? And I looked at him and I'm like, okay, so you're telling me that I just need to accumulate the highest quality work possible over time. And he's like, yes. (laughs) And if you look across the board, that is almost always true. And the two things that people go wrong a lot of times is that the quality of work suffers or if the quality is high, they keep doing the same thing over and over. So the, the quantity of work ends up staying the same. Obviously, they're not going to get much of an adaptation for that. So I think it's the uh, accumulation over time of high quality work. Yeah, it's, it's sort of funny. We'll, we'll end on that note. But like Mike, you know, it, it's, it's sort of funny talking to Mike because um, for those of you who don't know, Cal Dietz, um, trains at the, you know, trains the University of Minnesota Athletic Department. He's got something like 15 national championships under his belt and things of this nature. But he's he's obviously, you know, super guy as it relates to um, exercise physiology and a theory, you know, around that. And so it's, it's sort of funny. Michael throw out like, you know, these nerd heroes. Yeah, um, <laughs> like, like it's like trump cards, you know, like, uh, yeah, Cal Dietz, I was just talking to Cal Dietz, it's like, oh, really, you just talk to, like, you know, uh, a programming genius, that's awesome, Mike. Um, yeah, well, and I'm having dinner with Shane Hammond tomorrow night in Topeka, so it's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's, it's sort of funny because to you and I, you know, these names mean something, and I think that, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think ultimately... <laughs> That's why we're doing this, why we're trying to expose people to these high level thinkers, because you, know, you can say that your approach is scientific, but, you know, show me, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and I think when you listen to virtually every guest that we've talked to up to this point, you know, they don't all agree. And that that's actually, you know how you come to scientific consensus over time, right, yeah. is is disagreement. And so um, I think a lot of people, you know, are often looking for the answer. And the, yeah. minute, the minute you know the answer, you're lost. You know, you always have to be on a search for more information. And I think what's, what's really great about um, well, what CrossFit really brought to the table was that hard matters, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, it, it sort of graduated, you know, I kind of remember Mark Ripito talk about this where, you know, people graduated from P90X and people graduated to CrossFit and it just really, all you really saw was hard really matters every single time, you know, and now that we have the attention of these athletes, we can take, you know, a lot of people and then touch their lives with information from really smart people. And that's what we're obviously trying to bring to the table. So 
I appreciate everybody being here. I know it was a little inconvenient. We normally like to do these at 7. Um, we had to do the at 6 today because Chad had a uh, conflict. Actually, next Thursday, um, that is going to be recorded just to make things a little bit easier for Doug Chapman. But um, So you guys will get that uh, next Thursday. And uh, I appreciate everybody being here, and uh, we'll talk to you guys later. Adios. See ya.